Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This week, Helen and I are talking to the historian David Kiniston about politics and football. Trump, Brexit, and Aldershot FC. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, where you can read elegant and expansive essays on every subject imaginable, from Amir Srinivasan on pronouns to James Meek on the WHO, from Pankaj Mishra on Anglo-America to Catherine Rundell on the Greenland Shark. Get 12 issues in print and online, that's half a year of the LRB, for just £12, with the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. David Kiniston kept a diary of the 2016-17 season in football and in politics. You have to read the book to find out what happened to Aldershot. I think we all know what happened in politics. That was the aftermath of Brexit, and that was the year that Trump became president of the United States. And his diary, which we're going to talk about now, interweaves the story of supporting a local football team and watching the world, to his mind, fall apart. Technology let us down a little bit this week, so the sound quality may not be quite as good as we would like it to be, but we really hope you enjoy this conversation. So, David, we both really enjoyed the book. Just to give you a heads up, Mm -hmm. Helen is a West Ham fan, (laughs) so we think that there is uh, something to talk about (laughs) in relation to what happened to West Ham in moving ground in the year that you wrote about your deep fear Mm -hmm. of what would happen. So we we want to get to that and then do the politics and everything else as well. I think there's, there's a kind of way from Aldershot via West Ham to Brexit. Sure. <laughs> sure. It doesn't take a huge leap to get there. Okay. <laughs> David, this is a book about football and it's a book about politics and they're pretty mm. intimately connected. I think if we start with the football, it gets us quite quickly to some of the political events of 2016-17. Mm. Your club is Aldershot. You were born mm. in Aldershot. You write in this book really passionately about your commitment to your local team and Mm. your kind of faith almost that that is the essence of what it is to be a football supporter. What does it mean to you that the team that you've supported all your life is the team of the place where you were born? Yeah, I think it matters quite a lot, really. And I remember it was a thrill when I kind of worked it out that the maternity hospital was at the top of a hill in Aldershot actually does probably if one cricks one's neck a bit, overlook the ground. So all that seemed very satisfying. I mean, I've had actually, for many years, had a rather rootless kind of life because my father was an army officer. My parents were divorced when I was nine, moved around a lot, boarding school and so on. And then the 10 years after I left university, I lived in lots of different places. And I remember when I was kind of getting together with my wife, Lucy, in the early 80s, one point we compared the number of addresses we'd had in our lives up to that point, and she'd had two and I'd had 30-something. Um, so it's actually been a sort of a fixed point, a point of stability, emotionally or psychically speaking, as it were, to have a club that happens to be where I was born, which obviously in a sense is chance. I think it's an awful lot to do with identity. I mean, I think some people, some supporters, the dimension that they have is a more kind of communal one. For me, I was always over the years, much more of a loner in terms of kind of going to football, not sort of sharing my thoughts or emotions 
very much with others. So it was to do with sort of my own identity. And, and I've come to the conclusion it's a lot to do with personal myth. I admire very much the Anthony Pohl sequence, Dance to Music of Time. And there's a character, a retired general, who has this theory that we all have our own personal myth, whatever it might be. And that the sort of secret, as it were, of some kind of equilibrium is an alignment between the personal myth on the one hand and, as it were, objective circumstances on the other. And I think my personal myth is quite a lot to do with being the kind of up against the odds, slightly on the outside, all that kind of thing. So I think I've been more comfortable in that sense, supporting a small club rather than a big one. There are people who support small clubs who sort of then imbue that activity with a superior morality, as it were, almost, to people supporting the big clubs. And I think that's wrong. I mean, the emotions are essentially the same. But as it happens, supporting a small club plays in, I think, to my own personal myth. Love the idea of Anthony Powell watching all the shots as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think he was a football man. Somewhere. No, I don't think he was. Uh, I'm going to bring Helen in here because you have one entry which I think stood out to both of us, where you answer a survey from Aldershot about yeah. what's most important to you about supporting this club and atmosphere really matters more than the quality of the football, which is probably a good mm. thing sometimes. But you say that you weren't asked the question to which you would be able to give the this thing matters most of all to me, the mm. continuity question, which is mm. continuity of colours and mm. continuity of ground. Mm. So Helen is a West Ham fan. You have a few things to say about West Ham in this book too. 2016-17, the season that you're talking about. Helen, that's a big season for you in your the life of your football fandom. And you've experienced the great trauma for David the one that he fears most hasn't happened yet, which is a ground move. So just tell us about that. Yeah, I think it, I did experience it as a trauma, which I think actually mocks me out from the way that David sees the continuity question as an unexpected trauma, because the previous season, the 2015-16 season, had been West Ham's last season at Upton Park, the ground which they you know, had been for, for a long time, certainly my entire football-supporting life, and that season was actually one of my favourite seasons ever. And I recognised, though, that one of the reasons why I liked it so much wasn't just because West Ham actually played some decent football that season and did quite well. It was because of the fact that something was being left. And mm. it seemed that by having this you know, very enjoyable last season, we got as fans collectively to grieve what was inevitable about West Ham leaving Upton Park. And although, like many fans, I'd been very hostile to the idea, I'd come round to it. I think that the actual Olympics themselves played a significant part in that. I think it's also fair to say for many West Ham fans, and I certainly include myself, once it became a competition between Tottenham and West Ham for that stadium, (laughs) that that kind of increased attractiveness. So I left Upton Park for the last time in May 2016. And what was an exhilarating night, one of my favourite ever football matches. Against Manchester, 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 Manchester United yeah. there with a late winner. It was incredibly emotional. It was also incredibly exhilarating. And I thought that I was left grieving what had gone, but I kind of thought that there wasn't really any alternative. And to be honest, I still think that. And nothing mm. that I thought that summer or felt that summer prepared me for what I felt like when I entered the Olympic Stadium for the first time as West Ham Stadium. Not the walking up to it, I actually felt pretty good. But quite literally, the moment that I walked in the ground and looked at it, I had this sense that football for me was over, that West Ham mm. was over, that nothing could ever be the same again, and the simultaneous mm. sense that there was no way back into the past. 
that that mm. was over too, that literally it was all finished. Was that in some way liberating? No, way? I felt utterly, utterly miserable and crushed. Did you bereft? And then the rest of that season was me sort of finding some accommodation it, and that feeling lasted for months. And by the end of the season, I felt something different, that there was still something about West Ham that had survived it. And interestingly, I got that consciousness in a game against Tottenham, which was one. Mm and contributed to Spurs not winning the league that <laughs> year. But the, th- the sense was is that the club was bigger than the ground, the players, the football. It was about mm. the people who supported West Ham and had done for generations and that something of that was going to survive. I think that faith has also since been put to the test quite a bit. Mm. But I still think that there was something about the moving that meant the past had already come to an end. The Premier League and everything that went with it, all-seater stadiums, had changed football forever. Mm. And that in some sense, going to Stratford and it being, seemingly to me, a horrible experience was just Mm. the logical end of the road. Yes. Whereas I think several tiers down the pyramid, as it were, we haven't had an experience. You know, the phenomenon of the premiership and the sheer quantity of money, the greater gulf between the top and the bottom. It's become, in all sorts of ways... A different game, a different sport, not really a sport, I think I would argue often, the mm. premiership. But actually, that's very different further down. I mean, the pitches are better. Players come from further flung places, you know, more foreign players, obviously. But the experience of a Saturday afternoon, unfortunately, it virtually always is a Saturday afternoon, you know, they muck around with kickoff times. In essence, it feels like it always was. You see a bigger picture, Helen, whereas I think I've been essentially solipsistic about it. And I see this, uh, you know, every fortnight, Saturday afternoon, it's essentially for my benefit. And I want it to stay the same. For me, the ground has got to be the same. The colours have got to be the same. And then at some level, I can sit there and feel that in my late 60s, I'm still essentially the same person as the seven-year-old boy who first went there. So it's psychological comfort I really look for when I go. David, one of the odd things about Aldershot specifically, Mm. in the light of what you've just said, is that it's a club that's had a very traumatic Mm. couple of decades. And it's actually... It's gone bust and it's had to recreate itself. The entity, Aldershot Football Club, has had to be changed. It's actually had to go Mm. through new guises. Mm. The thing that gives you continuity, the ground and the colours, I was particularly Mm. struck by the colours, it's almost like a visual thing. It has to Mm. look the same. (laughs) Exactly. It has to be the local club. Mm. But it can go through these different guises. So you don't just get different managers, you get different Mm. owners, you get different Mm. chairmen, and you can live with that. You could get a chairman of a big club where fans can't live with it because it's money that's come from a... You're very hostile to Abramovich in this book. Mm, Um, But he's mm. not going to take over Aldershot. Let's hope not. But there have been some wretched owners when Aldershot went bust, the old league club went bust, and had to leave the Football League in the middle of the season. It's the first time it has happened for 30 years since Accrington Stanley in 1962. There was clearly some pretty dodgy ownership and bad things went on and so on, which I'm not sure were ever fully investigated it was a needless thing that happened it was my impression very much from the outside but it was fine because the first time I, after the club reformed went down five tiers five tiers from the fourth tier to the ninth tier and the first home match i went to was uh, home to yule and epsom <laughs> a one all draw but actually it felt essentially the same so you know that was fine it was weird sometimes going to see the shots in away matches in the early years, you know, having gone down five tiers, because it would be on absolutely tiny grounds. And the shots away fans would outnumber the home fans, kind of 10 to 1 or something. That took a little bit of getting used to, but, you know, gradually we moved up through the tiers and got back to the league. But then 
got relegated again as non-league again. But I mean, the essence of the experience hasn't really changed, would be my sort of takeaway point. And th- there are some overlaps with bigger stories. I mean, that's not completely dissimilar to the Rangers story in Scotland. The mm. Rangers were demoted all the way down. Yes. And again, yeah. I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands would go to these tiny grounds. You know, they, they survived that. I mean, it looked to me like yes. it was going to kill the club. but it No, didn't. I think it can be actually quite a reinvigoration experience. You kind of recommit as a supporter. Your Rangers till you die, all the shot you die, whatever it might be, as you go through tough times. And for me, actually, a big experience came in 2013 when the shots not only got relegated from the Football League, but also went into administration. That summer very nearly went bust. And I'd been seriously ill the year before with cancer and had a lot of sort of chemo and so on. And starting to go back to the football in 2013, and then we went relegated and went bust. Actually, that really sort of reinforced for me the importance of the club and the place and so on in my life and actually for the first time I became a season ticket holder and rather than just going to some matches during the season decided henceforth I was going to go to every match I possibly could which I've done since actually and it was a reaffirming kind of thing and you know chipped in with a bit of money as many many other supporters did to keep the club going at that point. I think what's quite striking David as I listen to you is that how strong this sense of continuity Mm. Um, it's not just in your life, but in relation to what Oldershop is as a football club. And I think this goes back to my feelings about West Ham leaving Upton Park, because it seemed to me that the continuity had been broken, you know, mm. some time before. Was there a moment pre the move when you sort of thought, actually, this is no longer the same, something's fundamentally different? Well, I think it went through a number of ruptures. I think it actually went through a rupture right back in the late 80s when mm. West Ham sacked a manager for the first time. Lots of West Ham fans had a certain sense of moral superiority around this. Mm. We've never sacked a manager. And then it seemed like we were just another football club. But I think the interesting thing is, is that in relation to place, the East End as a place also changed profoundly. I think I went to Upton Park for the first time in 1979. Certainly by the turn of the century, it was a very, very different place and if you take football in this country as taking quite a lot of its meaning from the relationship between the club and the place an urban place the old east end that had which west ham had been a you know in some sense an inexorable and part of was changing it was changing so Mm. profoundly it was no longer the case that most fans which was true when i first went to upton park were walking to the ground most fans were coming in the majority of fans were coming in from kent and essex yes and that was one of the reasons why the ground became so difficult because some of those last few seasons before the final one, there were no train services to the ground. You had to walk from mm. like 45 minutes away. Mm. And this mm. is the majority of the fans who were coming in. And so that continuity in terms of who the fans were in relation to the place, I think broke sometime in the late nineties. Then there was the whole crisis of basically being taken over, you know, like by an Icelandic bank owners. Of course. You know, who were then yes. caught up in the yes. financial In the financial crash, yes. And then all the implications of the Tevez affair and, the huge amount of money that had to be paid out after we didn't get yes. relegated in the 2007. So the sense that there was anything stable to hold on to <laughs> before we even yes. got to the, the ground issue, for me, at least that had long gone, that football and what West Ham represented had to become something different because the metaphorical ground in which it stood had just disappeared. And David, if I could jump in there, in a way what's different about your story, and you are very wary of what's happened to football at the top level, 
you're almost wary of getting drawn in. I quite like the way in your diary you sort of say that you don't like watching the Premier League, but then you do seem to watch it a certain amount when there isn't any other football on. But, I mean, presumably your fear is exactly of the story that Helen has just told, that Aldershot, for all the other, the downside, some of the downside mm. with a club that's struggled in lots of ways, mm. you don't have to face what Helen has been through, which, as she mm. says, has been a trauma in her life. Yes, a sort of modest sugar daddy who didn't sort of want to change things, you know, would be fine, but didn't want to change the essence of things. So I keep thinking of that famous line from the leopard, for things to stay the same, they have to change, but just modest change. But it's a weird thing that I found my relationship, you mentioned, you know, that despite kind of disapproving, which I do essentially, of the premiership and the ship, you know, the word obscene is used so kind of freely, generally, but actually there is something obscene about the amounts of money that splash around and so on. And I can see that the football is technically far, far better than it used to be. And I mean, I think it's been because of lockdown, but they've become available on YouTube, an awful lot of the old BBC match of the day programs from the 60s, 70s and 80s and you see long extended highlights, 40 minutes or whatever. So you really get to see what the football was like and it's way below what it is now in terms of the pitches, the balls and so on and the fitness, you know. The football now is so so fast, so quick and the stamina so great and yet for me there's something soulless about it. Uh, Colin Schindler, do you know who I mean by him? He's all his life my sort of mid-late 60s age, a Manchester City supporter, and obviously they had to put up with Man U's dominance for decades. And he wrote a book called Manchester United Ruined My Life. And that was before the big takeover of Middle East money of Man City. And then after the takeover, he wrote a book called Manchester City Ruined My Life, because basically it became a different club. The sheer scale of money involved and of course the move of ground. And my impression from that book is he, you know, feels disenfranchised as a Manchester City supporters, no longer his club. We should talk about politics because <laughs> sure, sure, at this podcast I would like it to be talking football every now and then, but it, it is talking politics and your book is about politics too. And you are, I don't know if this is putting too strongly, but during this year you're also to some extent grieving about Brexit and then you are mm-hmm. genuinely traumatised. I mean, you really convey it in a visceral way by Trump. You have a good description of, you know, the day before his election, the day after his election. On this podcast, we had a whole series of people on who were kind of working through that trauma, Mm. and it hasn't really gone away for many. Mm, mm, But with Brexit, you're aware of it, and you write about it. And I think Helen and I were both struck by it, the kind of mismatch between your attitude to football and your attitude to wider politics. Uh, The football is so rooted in place. You have a proposal for the Premier League, which is that people should only be allowed to play for clubs where they were born relatively near to the ground. I mean, mm. an absolutely somewhere perspective, to use that David Goodhart somewheres and anywheres. Yeah. I think you're a real somewhere person when it comes it, to That football. would be the ultimate somewhere bit of literature. Yeah, exactly. You want it to be the somewhere league. <laughs> and yet, I'm not saying you know, you're, you're an anywhere because you are sympathetic to the somewhere point of view, but with mm. an issue like Brexit, you absolutely do see the cosmopolitan perspective. And probably most people, it's the other way around. So, for instance, I would say, I mean, this is sort of anecdotal, but I think there Mm. probably would be statistical evidence to back it up. Many of the people who voted for Brexit are actually pretty relaxed about the Premier League. I mean, I think a lot of them would be fans of big clubs that are very cosmopolitan. But, David, there's an interesting thing here, which actually I often chat about with my son, George, and it's this. This would apply to other countries like Hungary and Poland, as well as Britain, quasi-nationalists or whatever, socially conservative and so on. It's a sort of alliance in a way, isn't it, of big cities on the one hand who are the liberal places. You know, in Yorkshire, for example, the only places that voted Remain in 2016 were Leeds, York and Harrogate. 
otherwise it was all leave. And the places that are at the heart of leave and social conservatism and left, you know, feeling left behind and anti-cosmopolitan, and that might be in Lancashire, anti-Manchester and Liverpool, as well as anti-London, are the small and medium-sized towns, yes? And it's the small and medium-sized towns which once upon a time, half a century ago, were on the whole flourishing football. I mean, the first cup final I really remember at all was Bolton in 58, and then there was Blackburn in 60, and Ipswich won the league in the same year, 62. And those are places that have been, in the bigger picture, left behind, but they've also been left behind in the football sense. And I've often been sort of surprised in a way. I mean, these are the sort of red wall places that went blue on the whole in last year's election. One would have thought in those kind of places, those medium-sized towns and so on, actually the thought of a bit of levelling up, to coin phrase, in the football world would be rather attractive. So I'm not so sure they're wedded to the premiership. I think you're wedded to the premiership if you're a big city person supporting a big city club. I think it's a bit different in towns and so on. I totally take your point. And I think it's complicated, but it is one of those sort of things that the anger about the grotesque inequality of the Premier League, both Mm. between clubs and then just what the players are paid. It doesn't have a lot of political purchase. It doesn't seem to, to me anyway. I mean, politicians have occasionally tried to, including Labour politicians, tried to get some Mm. mileage out of this. Mm. And I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect in many of those places outside of the big cities that did vote leave, Mm. the Premier League is also quite popular. It does seem some ways the mirror of your story where you're committed to this kind of local conception of football. Mm. At the same time, you're very committed to an international perspective on politics. Mm. I suspect that for many people, it is the other way around. I mean, it's partly the spectacle of the Premier League. It really is just, as you say, it's uh, Mm. compared to what we were offered Mm. in the 70s and the 80s as entertainment. Mm. It is the entertainment industry now. It's an Mm. enormously successful product. But the anger, unless I'm missing it, the anger compared to the anger about other forms of inequality mm. doesn't seem to be there. I mean, I would descriptively or objectively tend to agree with you, but it's still a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Given the important place that football plays in the sort of, you know, psychic lives, as it were, of, of so many people. But I think you're right. And Labour have sort of lightly sucked with the issue, but never really got involved in it, I think. Yeah, and Corbyn as an Arsenal fan, North London Arsenal fan, of wasn't course, the, per- wasn't of the course, person to do of it. Of course, one of the big red wall problems, wasn't it, really? The North London aspect and all that. I think there are lots of fans who have a really very understandable anger about what's happened to their clubs, including some mm. that are in, in the lower leagues. I mean, which were used to being in the higher leagues. I think Coventry yeah. might be a good example. Well, Coventry would be a yeah. very good example. Where they've had yeah, awful most awful time. And, and I think that quite a lot of that, that anger they would feel could easily get tied up into a story about big money, left behindness. Mm. I always thought, though, there was a nice parallel, or striking parallel, perhaps a nice parallel, between what happened in the 2015-16 season, you know, that finished just before the mm. referendum, and then mm. the referendum itself, because obviously something, you know, incredibly unexpected happened that mm. season, and mm. Leicester won the league. Mm. And by 10 points. By 10, 10 points, points, they didn't even just sort of squeak home. I mean, I remember that season at the beginning, West Ham played, um, before they got going that season, they played Leicester at home, and, and we lost. My friends and I were like, oh, this is going to be a terrible season. We've lost to Leicester. <laughs> but I think it was quite striking then the season after, the one that you're describing in, from an old shop point of view in 16-17, in, in the Premier League, then the old order was re-established quite quickly. And it yes. was established by and basically the big clubs really upping the ante on how much that they spent. Yes. And I think I quote at some point about halfway through the diary, halfway through the season, the incredibly small number of matches that the big six had yeah. lost against any clubs from outside the big six, you know. 
pretty oligarchic. But the oligarchy returned to normal as well that season didn't it? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One of the things that I was also struck by reading mm. is, is that you weren't just a somewhere person, if you like, in, to use this language in relation to football, but in relation to what had happened to this country through the mm. planning experience of the 1960s mm. and having a, you know, a great deal of sympathy with those people in those towns and cities who felt that something was taken away from them. And when mm. I was reading what you were saying about that, I thought there were certain parallels in those of us who felt like something's been taken from our, our football clubs that don't have that same experience of continuity as you've managed as an older shot fan. It is quite analogous, isn't it, really? And it's a bit of a bee in my bonnet in the post-war history of Britain I've been writing. But, you know, I think uh, terrible, terrible things were done to, to places and to communities between roughly the late 50s and early 70s, often, not always, but often for well-intentioned reasons to try to improve the quality of housing. And, and certainly there were, were funds that did need to go, but uh, there was an awful lot of housing that didn't need to go. A bit more willpower, a bit more imagination could have been salvaged. And even if it was going to have to be new housing, it didn't always have to be in the bleak, soulless, high-rise housing, much of which went up and turned out to be, as we all know, both an architectural and social disaster, sometimes barely surviving 30 years. And it was done against the wishes of people. I mean, in terms of the high-rise, certainly. I mean, there was little consultation, but in as much as there was consultation, it was clear that um, most people wanted to live in a nice little house or a nice little garden. They didn't want to live in a high-rise flat. They wanted to be in a place where they knew their neighbours. And uh, there was a, you know, I mean, community is a slippery word, but there was some kind of sense of community and continuity. And these communities were just destroyed. And there were many forces that were leading us to become a more atomized and individualistic and all the rest of it society. But I think this was one of the sort of most profoundly important causes, actually. And on the whole, with very negative effects. Do you see a story that gets us from that feeling of alienation from mm. experts, which I think is part of the reaction that there mm. was against mm. that? planning period that you're talking mm. about and the Brexit story because it always seemed to me that if you did a study and looked at the correlation between particularly older voters who lived mm. through that um, experience mm. and the resonance that the I don't quite like calling it the anti-expert argument but the skepticism mm. let's call it about expert argument that was applied during the, um, the referendum campaign that that was maybe part of the reason why it had resonance because there was a mm. sense in which they were already, before we even get to anything that happened in the 2000s around Iraq or anything like that, had reasons to not necessarily to trust what people told them about what was best mm. for them. I think there were specific things going on in the last three decades of the last century, kind of long term, of which all that ill-conceived urban redevelopment was important, obviously the process of deindustrialization, obviously the process of mass immigration was unsettling to many people, Obviously, the rise of social liberalism from the 60s onwards was unsettling 
to many people. I think there's also something that is very hard to sort of quantify and so on, but there was a kind of coarsening in the popular culture. And here inevitably, I guess I'm talking about Murdoch and the Sun as the kind of spearhead. It was a cheeky chappy kind of culture, wasn't it? That the Sun that came out of the old Sun that had come out of the old Daily Herald had from the late 60s onwards. It was no longer deferential. And we were very, very broadly speaking, in those first 30 odd years after the war, still a distinctly deferential society. I mean, it was starting to change, but I mean, we tend to think in terms of things that are happening in the metropolis and things like sort of beyond the fringe and so on, but maybe weren't making so much difference further outside, outside London and so on. And I'm sure if one went back and read The Sun in the 70s, one would be struck by how consciously anti-deferential it was. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you could draw a line through from that, through to Michael Gove's famous remark to do with experts. And we're now in this sort of curious position in 2020 where we need all the expertise we can get in the current pandemic. But I mean, it's not perhaps as bad here as in other countries, but in some countries, you know, I mean, the States is the obvious example, the suspicion of experts and the proneness to conspiracy theories and all the rest of it. We are in a sort of post-rational world, it sometimes seems. There is an odd connection with football in that story because I don't know if you saw there was a study done of how Liverpool, the city, voted in the referendum in the light of the fact that because of Hillsborough, Liverpool was a city that had effectively boycotted the sun for a generation. And it turned out that there was a correlation there, that um, Liverpool's vote relative to what would be expected for the Mm. demographic and so Mm. on was Mm. slightly more remain than Mm. comparable areas where sun readership was still as high. So there yes. is a, this, this weird football connection <laughs> no, no, because of you know, that terrible late 1980s period in football, which yes. put a lot of people off football for life. Yes. But it also put Liverpool off the sun. So can I ask you a kind of blunt question here? Because when you read the diary, it's not just as a football fan, but also as a historian in the way you've mm. been talking there. Brexit makes a lot of sense. I mean, so, so leaving aside some of the economic arguments and mm. some of the core political arguments, but emotionally that feeling of loss, that feeling of anxiety about wanting mm. to hold on to what's left. You, mm. you really want to hold on to all the shots mm. and you want mm. a nice sugar daddy and there aren't really any of them anymore. Mm. Mm. Um, so there's something quite wishful about it. At a deep level, it seems like you have a whole range of perspectives through which whatever your personal political preference is, Brexit really does make sense. And yet you mm. are also in shock up to a point in this. Oh, well, I, I mean, not as much as with Trump. Yeah but no. you know, it's a real jolt to you. It's a real jolt. I mean, I know you write yes. about this, but you really I think, are conflicted. I, I don't think I'm conflicted about the Brexit issue itself. I came to feel during the campaign, I mean, my own kind of position during the campaign itself in the summer of 2016, moved from qualified Remainer to out-and-out Remainer. And for me, actually, the biggest argument, and it was one that Cameron et al. virtually completely failed to make, was that with the rise of the East, and in particular China, and China clearly a country that does not have democratic or pluralist values, it was absolutely crucial that the West, in the form of Europe, stuck together and cohered and stood firm for democratic and pluralist and enlightenment values. And I only wish that Cameron and his troops had made that argument much more than they did instead of trying to do a replay of the old, the previous year's election, wasn't it, and the Scottish referendum to scare them off on the economics, project fear, etc. So I wasn't conflicted about the actual 
you know, I was dismayed by the outcome. But then obviously, as we all did, if we were arraigners, it was the start of processing it. And I think actually Vidara sort of records me at the start of starting to make some sort of sense of it. But actually, you know, that's a few years ago now and wearing my hat more as a historian, I'm starting to make quite a lot more sense of it than I was in the diary. I think one of the great values of the diary is it can tell it like it is in the diarist's mind at that particular moment. And it was a, it was a moment of real flux. But I think what was also going on was trying to sort of work out where ultimately my, my feelings and my values and whatever stood, because obviously that sense of allegiance to place and to continuity to a small football club and, and so on would be familiar emotions among Leave voters, but I was a Remain voter, and trying to kind of try to see a thing in, in the round and look at other points of view. I think if I was a more kind of outgoing extrovert person, I'd have a lot more conversations than I did with sort of fellow supporters and so on. But, you know, I'd have ventured into the East Bank, which is where, as it were, the Aldershot Ultras are. But I didn't, you know, I'm not a kind of social reportage, isn't my thing. I'm happiest looking at archives in libraries and so on. And listening um, to Leonard Cohen. And listening to Leonard Cohen, ideally, yes. But it was trying to make some, starting to make some sense of it in the round. And I mean, now, obviously, four years on from the referendum, the culture wars seem to rage with even greater ferocity than a few years ago. And I do think, and this is going to sound incredibly sort of soggy, but I do think it kind of behoves us all not to assume we're always absolutely right about things. So although in the end, yes, I'm firmly on the liberal lowercase l side of things, there can be something desperately unattractive, I think, about a certain kind of militant, intolerant, as it were, liberalism. And, you know, one of the things I've tried to do in my post-war history generally is move for treatment away from the big cities, particularly from London, but get out in other parts of Britain and so on. And for me, it was quite an important epiphany in a way. In about 2001, 2002, as I was preparing to get going on the writing, I spent about 15 months touring around Britain going into all sorts of archives and local studies, public libraries, and just generally looking around and going to lots of places I'd never been to before. And did start to make me realise the extent to which we tend to look at things so much through a, a London or metropolitan prism. And um, chickens came home to roost in 2016. It's a really interesting question about how far you could tell the story of what happened to Britain, that it got to the point of Brexit, or the vote for Brexit, via the changes in football and the changes in relation to place and the relationship between mm. football and place and, and what you could do with it in terms of the aspects of the referendum that turned out to be about identity. I was mm. someone who you know, always thought that the, the question was always actually the more literal question of what should Britain's relationship with the European Union be? I don't think it was much to do with Europe at all. Really, yeah, in it? relation to the geopolitical, as you said, mm. but also mm. in relation to various economic questions about mm. not being in the, in the mm. euro, etc. But clearly the referendum in some sense did become mm. a referendum about identity on both sides. But mm. what I was actually struck by as a football fan or as a West Ham fan in those seasons uh, after was... I don't think it's just a function of how difficult that 2016-17 season was for West Ham fans. Was the fact that when I went to football, and I went to, you know, every, I have a season ticket, I went to every home game. Until some time after the third meaningful vote went down, no mm. one who I talked to at football who isn't 
also a friend in my non-football life, if you see what I mean, ever mentioned Brexit to me. They never mentioned the referendum. Mm. I talked to quite a lot of people, but literally mm. until must have been March, April 2019, mm. I never heard a word said. So it seemed to me that there was a kind of, even though I, part of me would like to think that you can tell sort of, you know, like the story of British identity and football and how it connects to the referendum. Another part of me is, is sceptical because it seems to me for a lot of fans, the whole point of being a football is mm. that it separates you out from those questions, at least in their political form. Yeah, and I mean, on the whole, it's a leisure activity, isn't it? Going to see football. Leisure is a know, strange but, word. I mean, it's more like a suffering activity. But, a suffering, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, you're supporting, all supporting the same team. You kind of don't really want to kind of think too much. In that moment, you want to think about something that, as it were, emotionally is bringing you together rather than, rather than the other way. And I think there's something always very attractive, actually, potentially about sport is the way it can draw in people from such, you know, different backgrounds and no doubt different views and so on. And just for that moment, transcend all that. And on the whole, one should be grateful for that, I think. Something I've always been struck by in football, and it really came out in your book. I'm not nearly as devoted a football follower as you two, but when I go to matches, I always like looking at the away fans, particularly lower mm. league matches, when it's often a couple of hundred. And David, you mm. talk about games where, you know, the away fans can be numbered, not quite mm. on the fingers of two hands, but maybe mm. 13. <laughs> virtually, you know? virtually. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just, yeah. I find something really moving about that. And, it, you know, there is something different about the away fan relative mm. to the home fan mm. as an experience. And in your book, as you say, after, you know, when you really committed to it, you started traveling away as well. Mm. And it mm. takes you around the country, not the whole mm. country, but it does take you mm. to places. Mm. It does get you to see different parts of Britain. There is, there is a different experience being the kind of home and away fan mm. in how you experience the country that you live in. And you do mm. capture that in your diary. Actually, I was really struck by some of your descriptions of the places you go to, you know, miserable matches, or you lose, <laughs> or it's nil-nil. You, know, you seem amazingly tolerant of nil-nil draws. <laughs> And yet you're really glad to have seen that bit of Lincolnshire. Yeah, and football, yeah. people run it down, but um, it broadens the mind. It can do. <laughs> it, can, it can do. It can also narrow the mind along. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to put the positive. But for those people who travel, um, and there is a different kind, you know, if you're one of the 13 who's come from Geesley or whatever it is. Geesley, yes. Geesley, sorry. Yes. You are having a different kind of experience. And yes. it can be a positive one, I think. You capture that. yes. The last match of the season that my diary records, it was a question of who was going to get that final playoff spot. Was it going to be Aldershot or was it going to be Dover? And Dover's last match was at Barrow. And um, because it was the last match and to do a television coverage or something, kickoffs were all early at 12.30 or something. And the supporters coach from Dover to go to Barrow left at 3 a.m. <laughs> and, um, and I think it was 20, 25 people or something on, on the coach. But as I think I say in the diary, they were the true heroes of the day. One last question, because Helen and I were joking about this beforehand. I hope you don't mind us saying this. There's a very sure, funny entry where you say you make a kind of almost New Year's resolution not to spend so much time fixating on Trump. And then yes, the Trump quite. fixation goes up. I know. <laughs> you capture that it really had a grip on you. It actually yeah. kind of got under your skin. Yes. The fear in the diary is there. Yes. Um, so we're four years on nearly, and obviously many of those fears have been realised and many haven't. So it's not really a question about Trump, it's a question about your emotional yeah. response. Do you I, feel the same level of fear? I think I feel kind of cautiously hopeful to judge by the opinion polls that he'll lose decisively in November. Though 
as to whether, in all sorts of ways, whether it should do with the voting itself or the acceptance of results, things are going to sort of proceed in a kind of normal democratic way. Who knows? I was struck by the um, Financial Times a week or two ago in the context of Trump sending in those federal agents to Portland and so on. The FT, the most sober of our national papers by some way, I would think, had an editorial in which it was talking about how ever since Trump came in, people talked about the strong man and so on, potential dangers to democracy. But what was interesting was that the FT concluded that actually with this, he really was behaving potentially like an authoritarian strong man and that something significant was happening. And then the other day, actually, I think it was in the Sunday Times, Justin Webb quoted a very conservative lowercase c American, prominent American lawyer, whose name I now forget, but who has been a Trump supporter and had argued against impeachment earlier this year. But he was so struck by Trump's tweet to do with the possible desirability of delaying the election that he had written an op-ed piece in the New York Times basically saying this is this ultra-conservative, bone-dry conservative lawyer, saying, in effect, this is fascistic behaviour and he should be impeached for it, you know. So, to put it mildly, Whigs are potentially on the green and who knows what lies ahead, but it could be the most extraordinarily turbulent few months pre- and post-election. You know, he, he may have approval ratings that will suggest he's going to lose, but he still has around 40% of people who will it would seem, except whatever he does, whatever norms he overturns, however anti-democratic he is, however illiberal he is. You know, the thing he said the other day when asked about John Lewis, he said, you know, he just turned his hump back, but Lewis hadn't come to his inauguration. Ergo, Lewis was an overrated character. You know, all that thing he said when there were slightly better than expected economic figures a week or two after George Floyd had been killed. This notion that Floyd would be looking down, you know, approving these economic figures. It's grotesque, it's grotesque, and we've kind of got used to it, but just stand back a bit, it remains grotesque and dangerous and alarming. So in answer to your question, David, I think emotionally, I'm in a pretty, pretty much the same place as I was four years ago. And I'm pleased actually looking back, reading the diary, that it's an accident, I know I absolutely want to exaggerate, and lots of people are saying the same, but I think I broadly called it right, that Trump being elected was in terms of organic developments, sort of unlike huge terrorist attacks or stuff like that, I mean, it was the worst sort of organic political development in my adult life. And I think the thing I've loathed most about him, this king competition, has been his almost systematic support of foreign authoritarian regimes and denigration of democratic regimes. And this is from the leader of the so-called free world. I mean, shocking beyond belief. And yet there is always football. So the, the other thing that your diary captures yeah, is that, I mean, to start with, football. the entries tend to start with football and then move on to politics. Trump comes in mm. and you start with Trump, but then you have a lot of entries where you're speculating about the worst things that can happen on yeah, the quite. sort of global <laughs> yeah. scale. And then you go but back to the shots and you yeah, have a paragraph. And, and <laughs> you're consoling yourself, but you're also kind of, you, you capture something about how we all respond. We are quite capable of contemplating the end of the world and then really minding about what the football scores are. Yeah, well, I think that's very true, absolutely true. And it goes on in our heads, the big and the small, the whole time. And I think I've kind of, to some extent, learned that through other diarists, because in my work on post-war Britain, I use a lot of diarists, so not particularly famous or anything, and have often been struck by the way the big and the small, as it were, coexist at the same time. And, well, it's the state of being, really, isn't it? David Kiniston's book is called Shots in the Dark. 
a diary of Saturday dreams and strange times. It's out now. I really do recommend it. It's also, and we mentioned it in passing there, got quite a lot in it about Leonard Cohen as well. We talked about Trump at the end. Next week, we're going to be talking to the feminist philosopher Judith Butler. We're going to catch up with the interview that we recorded with her the week that Trump was elected in 2016. And we're going to be talking to her now to reflect on the fears that she voiced then, which ones have come true, and the ways in which the story has been different from how she might have anticipated. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Talking Politics.